Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. This happens to be show number eight. Uh, what we're going to be doing today is finishing off the rest of the chapter on the listing agreement. A couple things that I want to mention to you is that the previous show, show seven, is available on the website uh, for you viewing under Blackboard. And we're fairly quickly turning these around. Uh, we had that show available probably about four or five hours after we actually did it, available for you to watch. Uh, and the same thing today. We'll, after we get done, we'll make sure that we have that up on the web for you probably uh, so it's available today or tomorrow. Uh, next thing that I want to mention to you is remember that on the Blackboard website, I keep mentioning this in case I miss you, that we have a, a link on there to when the next or the first midterm exam is going to be and of course I'm not mentioning the date because we're going to be rebroadcasting this and I don't want students to be confused about the dates but I would like to have you go to the class blackboard website and look at the date schedule uh, remember we're going to have two testing times one in the morning and one in the evening to fit your needs and uh, I think that's pretty much it for right now what I want to do is the last time that we met we were talking about the, the listing agreement and the types of listings and we were talking about open listings and uh, exclusive agency listings and net listings and we sort of finished that off. What I wanted to do today is to start off on uh, I believe it's page uh, 86 talking about something called Agency Disclosure Act. And essentially, I'm going to kind of read this and I'm going to point out the form that we're going to be using. This is again for this book on, for the fifth edition, is on page 86. Just so that you know, it just says the Agency Relation Disclosure Act. It says listing and selling agents are required to provide both the buyers and the sellers with specific, specified written and oral agency disclosures. The law applies to all transactions involving one to four residential units for sale or rent of manufactured homes. One thing that you should always keep in mind, by the way, is a lot of times the way laws are written, they're really written to protect the consumer, the everyday consumer. So when you see things that'll talk about from one to four units, the concept here is, is that most people that are going to buy a piece of property, like a condo, a townhouse, a single family unit will be one unit. But there are a lot of folks, a lot of people that will buy like a duplex, rent out one half, live in the other side. Same thing with a triplex or a fourplex. And usually those loans also too, there's loans that are available for those kinds of programs for through the government, like FHA loans, you know, to help where you can buy more than one unit at a time, like a duplex or a triplex. So that's why the law is written that way. You'll see a lot of laws written that way. But the concept is though is that what you're going to want to do is to make sure, remember that when you list a property for sale, or you are representing a buyer that you disclose to both the buyer and the seller what your relationship is with the other party. So for example, if you are a listing agent, uh, the person that's actually taken the listing, you are your, your uh, contract, if you will, the contract that you have with that person is for you to represent their interests, their rights. If you have a listing and you're having an open house during a weekend and somebody walks in the door and says, my goodness, this is the most beautiful house I've ever seen in my life. I love it. Would you please take my money and write an offer on it? And you say, well, instead of calling somebody else, I guess I can, I can take care of that. Now you are representing both the buyer and the seller. And you have to disclose to both the buyer and the seller, both orally and in writing, what your relationship is with them. And what I'm going to do is just show you a form here. 
which I believe is on a page, and I'll get it up here in a minute. It's on this page, page 88. And again, I'll be blowing this up a little bit just to show you the main parts of this. Again, uh, I want you to see that this is a California Association of Realtors form that the disclosure says it's a disclosure regarding real estate agency relationships. And I'd like, I know in your book, and I know on TV it may be a little bit hard for you to see, so I'm assuming that you're going to have your book in front of you when I point these things out, that there are three basic parts to this. A couple things I want to point out, too, is notice that there are areas in which they're putting bold text or darker text. The concept behind that is, is that they understand, or it has been understood, that most people, when they are buying or selling a house, they are signing tons and tons and tons of paperwork. So the concept of making something bold or darker or larger in type is to notify them. So it's hopefully to stop them so that they turn to you and say, what are you talking about? And you can explain it to them in case it's a little confusing. But basically here, this is just telling what a seller's agent does and who you are responsible to. And this comes right directly again out of the book. It talks about, uh, you know, those duties we talked about that sounded a little bit funny, but they are true. You know, that you have something called a fiduciary responsibility to the client. That essentially means that because of the agency relationship that you're putting their interests above yours, okay, their interests above yours. That means if you're sitting there and the deal is not a good deal for them, but you need the money to close, you know, to pay your mortgage, you still need to put their interests above yours. Uh, the second thing is, is, so these are just talking about what a seller's agent's responsibilities are. The other thing under buyer's agent is talking about with the buyer's agent. So you could have somebody that only represents the seller. You could have somebody that only represents the buyer. A good example of that would be, uh, you know, you're sitting in an open house somebody walks in on a weekend and says, you know what, I, you know, after they've gone through the house and taken a look at it and said, you know what, maybe you could help me. I, I kind of like the house, but you know, there's a house down the street and it's not for sale by you. It's for sale by another company. Is there any way that you could maybe help me out or find out some information about it? And you go, well, you know, it's in the MLS system, sure. And you pull it up and you find out the information and you look it up and you go, you know, you call the, you know, the, uh, which I'm called. You call the owner up and say, excuse me, would it be okay if maybe this evening I bring over some clients to show the property to? The minute you do that, remember there was another agent that listed it. You are now representing the buyer. Okay, so you're going to have to disclose to the other people that you're representing the buyer's interest. The concept is, is that if you're, if you really think about it, if you're only working for the seller, you're really trying to get the highest possible price you can for the seller. You're trying to get the most favorable terms for the seller. You're trying to get the best possible deal in the world. So you want to get the highest price, most favorable terms for the seller. On the other hand, if you're working for the buyer, the opposite's true. You're trying to buy the house for the lowest possible price under the most favorable deal for the buyer. So you can see where you can have, under, depending upon who you represent, is what you're really trying. One, you're trying to get the highest price. The other, you're trying to get the lowest price. The other concept is, remember, you could be representing both of them. So in that case, you're trying to get be fair to both of them, and you need to disclose that to both. And in a lot of cases, you may be very well representing both sides. Okay, so this form needs to be read by the buyer and, or the seller. 
it needs to be explained to them and they need to sign it and date it and the time that they did it and that who the agent was that actually signed it or was representing them. Okay, very, very clear. You have to do this. This is something that you do. It becomes part of the documentation of the transaction. It's something that you have to keep in the transaction file in the real estate office so that if somebody comes back and says, did you actually, did you tell the buyer that, you know, you were representing the seller? Was that disclosed? You can say, here's the form with their signature on it. That's what you're really trying to do. Okay, the next thing we're going to talk about is something about preparing for the listing appointment. And I'm just going to kind of tell you in the way that I think you would prepare for it, and I'm going to point out some things that as I go along. A listing appointment means that somebody has contacted you in one way or another and asked you to come over to their home. Let me see if I get this so it looks pretty good. Asked, them, asked you to come over to their home with the idea in mind that you're going to assist them in listing their property for sale, marketing their home. Now, that may, you may have gotten their name, and you may be going to their house, and, and you maybe are there by a lot of different avenues. You have maybe had a client, an existing client, that has given them your name and has said something to the fact that, hey, you know, listen, Pat's a really good agent. I really enjoyed him. I think he's honest, trustworthy. He worked really hard for me. And I know you're trying to sell your property. Why don't you give him a call? So that could be one way that you're going to end up over there. The second way that you could end up over there is that maybe you're putting out some kind of an advertisement or a newsletter of some sort, and you're saying, listen, I'm doing, you know, I'll do a comparative market analysis for you, which is things that people want. You know, they may say, hey, I'm thinking about selling in the near future, or I think I'm looking at moving out of the community, but I want to find out what my house would sell for. Okay, so you're finding out that you're over there to do a comparative market analysis. That may very well result in a listing that night, or it may result in the fact that you're coming back maybe a month or two months or maybe even six months or a year later. Who knows? But you're going over there and talking to them to do that. They may have actually you could be on floor time. You could have been on the, de on the floor. at. Uh, I don't mean laying on the floor. I mean you're basically at the real estate office and you're answering the phone and somebody calls in on an ad. And uh, you're talking to them and they say, well, you know what? Uh, I guess maybe the best thing I need to do before I start looking for houses is maybe I need to think about selling mine. Okay? The point that I have is that you could end up going to their house based on a lot of different reasons to get there. Okay, a lot. It could have been somebody at an open house that knocks on your door and says, can you come over and see me this afternoon or tomorrow? The thing when you go to do that, though, you need to prepare yourself before you go to that listing appointment. You need to prepare yourself. Now, how much time you have to prepare could be, you know, it could be several days, it could be a week, two weeks, or it could be maybe the next few hours. But the first thing that you need to do, and this is why it's important that you have gone on what we call these home tours on a regular basis, is that you should be familiar with what's on the market. In other words, what properties sell for in the area. Before you go to their house, you should have the address. You should have at all possible, you should have gone to the multiple listing system, and you should have pulled out a list of properties that fit or appear to fit their type of a home. If you can, you should always have available to you some literature or brochures that talk about things like marketing your home, establishing a price for your home, all that kind of stuff to help them. Okay, that's if you're doing something in a relatively short period of time. Also, if you have the time, it's always a good idea to call the title insurance company before you go there. 
And when you call the title insurance company, like one of the ones that we use on a regular basis is financial title, you call financial title, look them up in the phone book, get the name of one of the offices and just say, listen, can you, can you get me in contact with your customer service area? And they'll put you through. What you want to do is be able to give them the address of the property and ask them for something called a listing package or a property profile. There's a number of different names to it. What that's going to do is going to produce for you a folder. It's going to have a copy of the grant deed, a copy of the deed of trust, the latest deed of trust. It'll have a plat map, hopefully, that will have the measurements or the dimensions of the land so you have an idea on how large it is. It'll have the assessor's parcel number or, 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 or tax roll. It'll have a lot of information. Some of them will have comparables. They'll have a lot of different documentation. Now, your intention is not to go to the client's house with a big stack of stuff and drop it on the table and say, here, look at how hard I worked. It's just that you very nonchalantly appear like you have prepared for it. You have prepared just like you would any other kind of an interview because you're really going on a job interview is what you're really doing. And if you really go like on a job interview, I don't know how you guys have done it or how people have told you, but one of the things that's really important if you go on a job interview is to have done some research on the company. You know, find out what the company does, what they manufacture, what services they provide. It's the same thing here. You're trying to go in there being knowledgeable about the house and the property. Okay? So anyway, that's the first thing. You want to be, and you want to make sure you've got all the documents that you need. Don't leave the office and not have listing agreements. And I don't mean like one. You know, like have some, if you're like me, I always have, a, you know, a number of them so in case I make mistakes on them. If you're utilizing uh, the program called WinForms, if you've gotten to that point of having a laptop and a portable printer, you can have that stuff on the laptop and print them out or bring them with you. So you're looking about having things like your listing agreement, carry purchase offers, carry, uh, you know, addendums to agreements or disclosure statements. Make sure you have everything that you need. Make sure you have a flashlight. Make sure you have tape measures. You know, everything ready for you to go. Bring your digital camera with you or a camera with you that you can take photographs. Uh, because sometimes that house might be just down the street and sometimes it might be 30, you know, 10 miles away, depending. You know, there's a lot of areas where there's, in the rural areas, where you may have to drive quite a distance to get there. And there's not a lot of real estate offices in the area. So you're going to have to go out there and not say, oh, Forgot the tape measure, I'll have to drive back 40 miles to go get it. You want to bring everything with you that you think. That's why we had in those other chapters that, you know, what you need to have on board all the time. Uh, talking a little bit, so what's going to end up happening is you're going to go to the house. If you can visualize this, you're going to knock on the door. They're going to answer the door. You're going to have your business card in your hand. You're going to say, hi, my name is Joan Smith or Mary, you know, Jones or whatever your name happens to be. And essentially what's going to happen is you're going to go in there and you're going to take a look at their house and probably within about five minutes or so you're going to be sitting at a kitchen ta table or a kitchen counter or something. Some people may very well, uh, I mean, most people, uh, I know I am, I'll usually bring people in, whoever they are, and offer them something to drink, you know, some water, some coffee. some. So anyway, you'll get over that. You'll sit down, you'll have a little bit of niceties about what's going on, and then finally, one of two things are going to happen. Either they're going to expect you to give them some form of a presentation of what services you have to provide, or they may very well say, listen, before we sit down, why don't I just give you a tour of the house? Okay? But it is important that you, as a real estate agent, somewhere along the line, have an idea of the house. In other words, take a look around the outside of it, through the garage, through the room, so you know what you're really talking about, you know, what the house looks like. I mean, we're just talking about kind of going in and looking around just so that you know how many bedrooms, how many baths they have, 
so you have a relatively good idea of comparison so when you compare that against the other homes you know what you're talking about what's going to happen is after you get through all this kind of stuff probably no more than maybe 15 20 25 minutes into this conversation they're finally going to come down with the magic question and the magic question is going to be John or Mary whatever your name is how much do you think I can sell my house for or how much do you think I can sell my land for? How much do you think I can sell this office building? They're going to ask that question. That's the first thing. And you don't necessarily want to jump right back in again with an answer. You want to ask some other questions. You want to ask them, well, how much money are you looking on profiting? How much money do you want to get back out of it? How soon do you need to sell it? Do you need to sell it like this week, next week, a month, two months? What kind of time pressure constraints are you under? Okay, Because if they have all the time in the world to sell the house, that means they can leave it on the market a lot longer. If they're under the gun and say, listen, I'm building a house. I got The deal closes on <laughs> July 15th. If I don't have this house sold by the 1st, I'm going to end up making two house payments. You know, So you have to have an idea of what you know, what kind of character, what's going on characteristics are going to go on. Keep in mind that with a client, will always talk about price, but in reality what they're talking about, in my mind at least, is how much money are they going to get out of the transaction. They may say, I want 500000 I want 400000 I want 300000 some figure, but in reality what they're really saying and may not even know they're saying is they want to really net a certain amount of money out of it you know, 50000 60000 whatever it is. That's what they're really interested in because they're going to use the money that they get from that house to do a number of things, maybe pay off an existing house, maybe use that money for retirement, maybe use it as a down payment on another house. That's what they're going to be concerned with. What's going to happen is, is then that's where you're going to start talking to them about, after you've seen their house, about the other homes in the area. And I'm telling you right now that most of the time, most people will be aware of what's been on the market and what it's sold for. Because what they've done is they've snuck down there at 1 o'clock in the morning and got the flyers out of the, you know, in front of the houses, out of those little plastic buckets on the front of the houses. And so they know what the Murphy's house across the street was for sale for. They don't know what it sold for, but they know what they were asking for it. Okay? And so they have some kind of a rough idea. They've probably also gotten newsletters and literature to have some sort of a rough idea of what houses sell for in the area. They don't know all the characteristics of the houses. They just say, hey, the house down the street sold for $300,000 or four or $500,000. So anyway, what you have to do then is because you've already done the research, you're able to sit there in a very easygoing, nonchalant, and, and where you can listen to what they're saying, explain to them, okay, well, the houses that have sold in this area in the last six months, let me tell you what they are. And you can say to them, the house that's two streets over, had a swimming pool and had a blah, blah, blah backyard, had a tile roof, whatever it is, and this is what it sold for. This is how long it was on the market for. And you can go down and explain to them what those houses have actually, what's really been going on then you should have some kind of a discussion about what's going on in the market right now. Is the market fast? Is it slow? Are there people with a lot of pent-up demand to buy houses, or are they just laying around on that market for a long period of time? Are people having a difficult time getting financing? You're trying to do all of that kind of stuff. The key thing then what you should be doing is, is finally when, they, when you finally get some sort of a rough idea on what you think the house may be able to sell for within a reasonable period of time, you would want to do something we call a net sheet. And what a net sheet is, is where you take the sales price, 
You take away from the sales price things like any existing loans they owe on the property, or actually you take the sales price, you take you know, the fees that would, be, uh, that would be levied on the sales price, such as your commission, your escrow fees, your title fees, all those fees. Okay, now you may say, where do I get those fees from? Where do I get that? You're, that's where your escrow officers can really have helped you out by providing all those documents for you. And so essentially you're working all through that, then when you get all the way down to the bottom and you figure out all the fees that are going to be associated with it, then finally you're going to take away any existing loans and come out with a net figure and say, okay, based on that sales price, this is how much you should net. Okay? And then from there they may say to you, great, let's list it, or they may say, they may very well turn around and say, well, what happens if I lower the price? <laughs> what happens if I raise the price? In other words, they'll talk about that. Okay, after you have done all of that, the one thing that you want to convince them of, and I'm going to point this out, it's in your book. Number one, on page 89, it says, it talks about overprices. When you set the price of the home, you really want to be realistic with them, okay? Because as it says here, is an overpriced listing is not much better than no listing at all. Once salespeople know that a property is overpriced, it can take months before they will show it again. The big thing is, and this is, an American phenomenon, I don't know any other way to say it, is that in the United States, unlike other countries, if we say this is our price for some unknown reason, very rarely are you going to get people that will take the time and the effort to take and make a lower priced offer. Are there some people? Yes. But if you put the house on the market for $350,000 and it's overpriced, okay, by ten or twenty thousand dollars, you're probably not going to get people that will look at the house and turn around and make a lower offer. Hopefully, that's clear. I mean, I find that very interesting. I mean, we will always do that. We will we will wait for something to go on sale. We will wait for the car prices to come down. We will wait to buy. You know, whatever. We we are not, for some reason, a type of society that will walk in and say, you know what, that brand new car that you want to sell. For eighteen thousand, I'll give you fifteen. We just don't do things like that. We feel—I don't know whether it's—we feel uncomfortable, we feel nervous. I don't know whatever it is, but it's amazing. Okay, so what'll happen is if you overprice the house, the house will go on the market. You're going to spend a lot of time, a lot of activity, a lot of agents are going to look at it, and they're all going to know that the house is overpriced. And if it's overpriced, those agents are also. <laughs> what's going to happen is they're just going to not show the house. Because they're going to say, you know what, that house they want 370000 for, and there are other houses in the area that are just as good, if maybe not better, that the owners want three hundred and fifty for. So why try to push an overpriced house on my clients? It doesn't make any sense. What you're faced with then is, is that every day that goes by that the house sits on the market and it's overpriced is days lost. And what ends up happening is now if you want to sell it, if the people need to sell it, now you have to go in for a price reduction, which means that now you've got to go and put a sign on the outside, say reduce price. You've got to put an ad in the paper, reduce price. Now everybody thinks you're desperate. Now, now they say, oh, wow, if the client reduced the price by $20,000, which is where it should have been in the first place, oh, now guess what? Now we ought to be making offers. Now they're desperate. And the reason why they reduced it is because they're desperate. So now they went from 370 to 350. Maybe we ought to offer 330. Okay. So keep in mind you have to have it realistically priced. If you don't, 
and, and it just goes on and on and on. I mean, you could, you could lose a lot of time and a lot of groundwork. That's precious time for the client, and then they'll be wondering why they're making two house payments. Um, the next thing is, is that you need to talk to people about is something about curb appeal refers to the house, how it appears by passerby. The big thing is, is that you need to discuss with the client both the interior and the exterior look of the property, the exterior and the interior. Uh, if there are things that need to be done on the house before it should go on the market, in other words, it doesn't do any good to put a house on the market in which the lawn is burned up, the bushes are dying, you know, the, the color of the deck is awful, the house needs to have a paint job, because what's going to happen is, again, people, we, will not go into those houses. You know, unless we are an investor, what we'll do is we'll just pass it by. Now, if we're an investor, our lights go off. We go, wow, terrible-looking house, ugly-looking house, probably can't get it sold. I'm going to go in and take a look at it and make some rock-bottom offer and try to get it for, for nothing. But that very rarely are you going to get the average consumer is going to do that. Now, in a lot of ways, it comes, becomes difficult to explain to people and say, you know what, that, that deck outside, I know, the, I'm thinking of certain houses, and the deck outside is, you know, it needs a paint job, you know what I mean? And, and you find it difficult to tell people. You don't want to hurt them. So sometimes it helps to have what we call third-party literature. There's literature that comes from things like title insurance companies, escrow companies, uh, lenders, That'll do things like, say, how to hold an open house, how to make your home attractive for selling, okay? Then that way you're not the bad guy. You can take it and say, you know what, here's the brochure where it says where uh, financial title is saying this is the things that will help you sell your house successfully, okay? This is what Bank of America says. This is what the Federal Housing Administration says. Hopefully you get that idea. That way you're not the one telling them that their deck that's purple and orange and has stains on it looks terrible. You're just letting them know. And, for the, and also, too, for the price, for a small amount of money, they can correct some things that look terrible. I mean, paint is not really that expensive in some cases. I mean, simple paint. If you're talking about two-story job with paint sprayers, that can get to be more, a lot more expensive. But, you know, and having the house look attractive, trimming bushes, cutting bushes, you know, mowing lawns, watering them, making sure it looks attractive, sweeping the, you know, the front yard is really important. Getting rid of the old cars in the yard is amazing. Um, you can make, I mean, you can make a house look pretty good in a f f relatively short period of time. Uh, the other thing that you may want to talk to them, too, is about what we call staging. Staging is something that's sort of a new phenomenon in the sense of, in the sense of, uh, it's kind of the buzzwords. There's TV shows, like I think either like the Learning Channel or Discovery Channel will talk about where we have people now call uh, staging people. And what they do is they come into a house and they will work with the homeowner to figure out how to present the house so it looks attractive when you walk in the door. Again, this is a third party that's coming in. Uh, to give you an example, I wish I could run the TV shows. I can't. But they would have these people that would be on these shows that would be getting ready to sell their home. And the first thing that would happen is the agent would go in and take the TV crew through the room or through the house. And I mean, in this house, they would have things like, here's, here it is in the summertime, and they still have the Christmas decorations up, okay? Um, they, have, they go into a bedroom, and the bedroom is just literally packed. You can't even walk around the bed. You know, it is full. Uh, the, the room, the color is just 
not looking very good. It's cluttered. And so what they would do is they would talk to the people and they'd say, okay, we're going to help you. And it was amazing for maybe two, three, four hundred dollars how they could correct it. First thing you're going to find is that if you want to make the rooms look better is to get rid of the stuff in the rooms. You may have to say to the client, again, this is where third-party material helps, you know, like this is what the experts say. Um, doing things like getting the kids' toys out of the room, packing them up, putting them in the garage. Go into places like uh, uh, not Costco, but uh, although you can get it at Costco, going to places like uh, Target or some of the other places, you know, like Walmart and getting those bins and putting stuff away. Because now that room that looked like it was tiny, teensy-weensy little room, now looks large because of the fact that all of the toys and all the extra stuff is gone, okay? Messes in the room, you know, in a stand or a study, all that is gone. And what's interesting about these shows, and if you ever get a chance to watch them, because the steps they do is they take the camera through, crew through, and the owners initially are going, what do you mean that room looks bad? You know, I mean, and then what they do before they actually do the actual change, they have an open house, and they have these hidden cameras all over the place, and they watch people come in, prospective buyers come in and listen to what they say and it's always hard for the owners to take it because what's happening is is that they're telling them you know this place is cluttered the room looks dark the blinds don't look right so they're, they're showing this to the people that are actually owning the house then they bring the people in who spend you know do a little bit of painting a little bit of cleaning up and then they bring people back through again and they go wow what happened things changed the place is bigger and they've done these types of shows and you know, small houses, condominiums, townhouses, whatever, and the effect is always the same. People come back in again and go, wow, what happened here? And it usually costs hardly any money to get it corrected. But the point is, is that the house has to look nice and clean when it's for sale, okay? That's what I want to emphasize. Um, a couple other things that they point out here during the meeting with the listing, you know, missed. Uh, listing prospect it says get owners involved as you emphasize we are problems and solutions invite their interest in the partnership designed to fulfill their needs keep in mind that the client needs to understand and you need to convey to them that you are forming if you will not a formal legal partnership but you are forming a partnership you and the client together are the ones that are going to sell this house you're going to be doing your part by asking all the brokers that work in the neighborhood or in the area to come in and take a look at it. You're going to be holding open houses. You're going to be running ads in the paper. You're going to be screening clients. You're going to be doing a lot of work. You're going to be putting signs up out front. You're going to be doing a lot of stuff. What you need to have them do is to work with you and understand to make the place look nice, make it look clean, uh, make it so that it's available for, for viewing. Understand that, for example, one of the things that you'll have to tell your clients is that you really don't want to be in the house when the agent shows your house. I know that's a little bit hard to take, but you don't want to do that. And the reason why is that if you think about this, if somebody comes into your house to look at your house to buy it, you know, um, or you're looking at somebody else's house, you feel a little bit uncomfortable looking at it. You know, you're afraid, should I really go in the bathroom and look at it? I really don't want to look at it. What you really want to do is you don't want to be, you want to tell the client, you need to be out of here. Okay, you need to leave. If you know that an agent's coming, find out what time they're coming and just go go have a cup of coffee someplace because you want the, the prospective buyers uh, willing, uh, ready, willing, and able to actually look at it and feel comfortable. 
and if they want to, feel comfortable to criticize the place. You know, I mean, you know, if they want to. Uh, and I was amazed. I, I, um, my wife and I built the houses I've mentioned several times uh, a couple years ago, and the house that we built is not a cheap house. I mean, this is a fairly substantially large, ex you know, expensive house, and we were sitting in the model. After we had gone through the whole thing, we were sitting in the model trying to get, if you will, some design ideas that we had to. So we were just sitting on the couch, and we looked like normal, you know, people that were looking at the house, except we were sitting on the couch in the living room. And I was amazed, you know, how people would come in and say things. And this house was in perfect order. It was a model home. But they would go, oh, I don't like that view, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. And I mean, even so, it wasn't my particular house, my house. I felt kind of offended by that, you know, because it's kind of like saying something against my decision to buy that house. You know what I mean? And so, again, it's important that, the, but it was important for these people to come in and, and have their opinion, be, feel free enough that they could look at it and say whatever they wanted to say. So that's what I say there. Um, on this page over here, on uh, 91, they talk about some things that I've already mentioned. Research, procedures, and obtaining the listing. You know, it says most agents use title companies to obtain things like legal descriptions, light so lot size, zoning, surrounding streets, and the same tract as the subject property. Also remember, too, that if you're talking about things like zoning, or anything like that, you very easy for you to go down to the building department or to the planning, actually the planning department, if it's in the city, the planning department, if it's in the county. And those, you walk in there, you know, if you're an agent, walk in there and get the information from them, and they're wonderful people. We have them come in and speak during our internship program. We actually have the people that stand at the counter come into our class and tell us what they do. So if you go in there with the property address or a plat map, they'll help you look up what the zoning is, what the building restrictions, they'll help you with all of that. Okay, so that's really important. You may have to do that, especially if it's on land or it's commercial type property, where you need to find some additional, or the people want to buy the house and find out something. Now, you're not going to be the one that will tell them exactly how they're going to build, but you want to be able to go down there and maybe get, you know, who did they talk to, what's, what, you, what you found out is the current zoning, you know, all that kind of stuff. You, maybe the information that you're supplying to them. Okay? This is another thing we talked about. I'm not sure that we talked about this before or not, but if you're looking, if the title company has given you the grant deed, remember that on the grant deed that the, that the county can, can and will collect from the buyer of the property, I think it's the buyer of the property, or whoever negotiates it, 55 cents per $500 or $1.10 per thousand on the amount of equity that was transferred. Okay? What that means and the significance of that is, is that you can look at the grant deed at the documentary transfer tax stamps. Does anybody know where there's a copy of a grant deed in the book? I can't remember on this particular book. But if you look at a grant deed, there's a little block that says, documentary transfer tax. And you can look at that, and that will tell you how much money was collected, okay? And that way you can figure out what they actually initially paid for the property, okay? So um, if, it was a, if it was $110, it would be what? Anybody know? It was $110? Get real quiet. If it's $1.10 per thousand, do the calculations. If it's a dollar ten per thousand, 
and they charged $110. Okay, you guys can work on that. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's a whole other class. I mean, I, anyway, that, all they're saying is that you can use that to figure out what they paid for the property. Okay, another thing that you want to know is comparables are properties that are you have closed escrow and are similar to the subject property. Subject property means the house that you're listing in size and amenities and located within the one mile of the area. Uh, you can get those co comparables both through the multiple listing system and also, in many cases, the title insurance companies will supply those to you, help you out with that. Okay, So there's a lot of stuff that the title company will do for you. Um, this is one thing that I just want to point out and give you a little bit of a story on how this works. It says, always let the buyer check on permits to limit your liability. Let me tell you how this works. And I can give you about 10 examples, one after the other, how this works. When you go and you do any work on your home, any work, you know, typically we think that we need to have a building permit if we're doing something on the outside of the house. In other words, we build an addition, we put a pool, we build a garage, we re-roof the house. What, I, what I'm really telling you is that, number one, when, uh, during the listing, the owner of the property has to state whether or not they have done any work on the house that has required a building permit. Okay? What that essentially means is that if they've done the work on the house and they haven't had a building permit, there's been nobody that's come in after them and has done any sort of inspection to make sure that it has been done correctly. Because when you do get a building permit, there's a whole bunch of requirements that you have to fulfill. If you're putting an addition onto the property, you have to give them the dimensions of the property, you have to show them views, you have to, you have, to have an engineer look at it and do structural calculations to see if the floor can carry the weight, if the roof is tied in, if it'll stay on during a high wind, it's, it's called hur hurricane clamping, whether or not it's uh, able to, uh, like for example, if uh, during an earthquake, whether it's earthquake safe, there's a lot of things that these building inspectors look for or the building department looks for, rules and regulations, and things that inspectors look for to ensure that the construction is done correctly. The problem is, is a lot of times work is done on a home and the work that's done has not been done according or using a building permit. Okay? And the difficult things a lot of times is, is, is what, when is a building permit required? And what you're going to find out is the best way for them, what they should have been doing, is, is at least contacting the building department to find out when one, was, one needed to be done. Uh, to give you an example, some of the places that I've seen where I personally have had to have building permits that people maybe didn't think about. We didn't change the house, but for example, if you're putting a new heating and air conditioning system in the house, I've had building permits. Okay? If you're putting additions on the house, a building permit. If you're going to change the roof out, you're required to have a building permit. Okay? But the point is, is, and when I say permit, I mean that you go down, apply for the permit, get the permit, and then some inspector comes out, does the inspection, signs it off, and gives you a final that it's completed. Okay? Now let me tell you something that I, I've personally experienced. When I sold my home a couple years ago, over the years I had had a new roof put on, I had heating and air conditioning system, I had things done to the house. I also had gotten building permits. I had also done what I had thought followed the appropriate procedures meaning that I got the blue plastic bag that they require in the county, got the permit. The inspector had been out there during different phases of the inspection, had signed off, even had me correct some things, take things out and put it in. I was under the impression, for whatever reason, because in two cases I had a contractor doing things, 
that the work was done and inspected. Okay, that that that's that house. Come to find out, you know, in the in the, in the listing agreement it says, have you had any work that you need to have the inspection done? You know, so I go to the county and I say, excuse me, I give them the parcel number and the information. They run it and they say, your roof was never finaled, <laughs> your heating and air conditioning system was never finaled. I said, how in the world did that ever happen? Those are two well-known companies that do that stuff. Well, a lot of times it happens because what, what they do is they call the building inspection department, say, can, can you come out and do a final inspection on the roof or the system? And when the inspector gets there, there's nobody there. There's no ladder for them to get up on the roof or there's no way, nobody to meet them. There should always be somebody there to meet them in my personal opinion, so that they know where the plant, you know, they know where everything is. Even if you've had the same inspector, you can find out that the day that you call for the final inspection, another inspector comes out because the other guy is off. So what you need to do is you need to meet them so that you can, here it is, do you need a ladder, you need tools, you need a flat, you know, what do you, what do you need to get this done? And a lot of times that's caused because they call for the inspection and then the guy that's doing the work gets busy and runs down the street to work on another house. The inspector comes, maybe leaves a note or something in some place. Nobody follows up. You got all done. You pay them. Next thing you know, you find out it was never cleared. Okay? I've had the same thing happen. I had a pool put in my brand new house. Same thing. Got all done with it and got a, this time I get a note from the building department that the pool was never filed. Same situation. Within that period of time, call the building inspector. Now, how in the world that ever happened, I have no idea. You know, because I live in an association. They have very, very tight restrictions. We had had them out many times. They made me move trees two inches. They made me move vines. I had, uh, was under the assumption that the pool company had gotten the final. No, they hadn't. So I had to have the inspector come out. He had to do the whole inspection and then sign it off and then give me a document that says, your pool is finaled. It's done. Okay? So the important point is it's incumbent really upon those. The seller is supposed to be the one that sees to make sure that all of the building permits are correct and up to date and have been signed off. And if the buyer has any issues, they need to know that they can go to the county and find out if there's been any, any work that, need, that, need, that has not been completed. Hopefully that makes sure. Now, when I asked the building department, not to beat this to death, I said, am I like the only guy this has ever happened to? And they go, no, there's probably thousands of these things out there. What happens is, is that when you apply for a building permit, you usually have a year or two years, depending upon what county, city, or whatever you're located in. And what happens is there are people that apply for building permits and never do anything. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. I mean, they go through the whole effort. They decide, I'm going to put a fence up, and they're required to have you know, a permit, let's say, for a fence. Like in Sacramento, if your fence is over six feet high, you have to have a permit. Uh, so they get the permit, and then they decide, hey, I'm going to sell the house, and I'm not going to put the fence up. So they never get it, and the permit's still open on the house. And there's thousands of those things. I don't know how many thousands of there are. And there's nothing, no system in place until recently, at least where they send a letter out and say, by the way, there was a permit that you pulled. That's the term you use, pulled the permit. But nobody ever called for a final. Where are we at? <laughs> the permit's going to expire in two weeks. What do you do? Okay, that's usually the way that you find out or get reminded, okay? Anyway, so that takes care of that. Um, the other thing, uh, they talk about a lot of different departments that you can check on and make sure that the house, again, that's because we talked about all those disclosure statements that they have to do during um, uh, the listing thing. 
Uh, the seller can pay off if you have any kind of assessment bonds or the buyer can assume the bonds. So if you've had any special district bonds that have been put in place, you could have the seller possibly pay those off during escrow, depending upon how large they happen to be, or they may be assumable by the buyer. Okay, that's another thing that you need to find out. A lot of those things, though, that what's going to happen is that the seller doesn't necessarily even know what that stuff is in any great detail because usually all that statistic type information is coming out of the, out of the, uh, the uh, title insurance company. When you get the title report, it'll say there's an assessment bond, these are the taxes, here's mechanics liens, you know, they'll put it on the, uh, on the title report. Okay. Okay, down here, now they're talking about you're bringing in the sale part, okay. Um, they're talking about what we call closing the seller. Closing the seller. Closing the seller means that you've been out there, you've done a lot of work, you've shown their information, and now you want to find out whether or not they are going, you know, whether they're going to take any action. There's a lot of philosophy, a lot of different ways that people talk about closing. The bottom line is, is that what you should be doing during your listing presentation is getting them down and answering all their questions, okay? And then finally, you should turn around and put the listing agreement in front of them and say, would you, you know, write your name here, and then when you do that, shut your mouth. Okay, they'll tell you that when you get in there. In other words, once you have gotten to the point that you have answered what you think all their questions are, just shut up and hand them the pen. Hopefully that makes sense. Because as long as you continue to talk, <laughs> they continue to not make decisions. Okay? So you'll notice that. Um, let me see down here. And, you know, you're, you're pre when you work for a brokerage office, you're going to have a lot of different ways that they're going to explain for you to how to present, do your presentation, different ways that you're going to present stuff. You know, some people in the beginning will go out with a very formal presentation. Here's a picture of my office. Here's a picture of my dog. Here's a picture of my car. You know, all that other stuff. And a lot of times as agents go by, they, or time goes by, they usually get a lot more comfortable and they don't usually feel that and they develop their own style. You may find out that you may do that in the beginning and you may think that that's the greatest thing in the world and then you may find out later on that you really don't, that's not the way you operate. You know, you basically show up at the house and, you know, it's you. <laughs> and you have some small amount, it doesn't look like you're moving in. You know what I mean? I mean, some salespeople look like they're moving in. They show up with three briefcases and an overhead projector to get a listing statement. You're just going in, you're feeling comfortable. So they have to develop your own style. So they give you a lot of tips and explanations. But usually you talk about your company. You know, you talk about, you know, what your previous experience has been, you know, what you've done, what your background is, so on and so forth. But don't make it a real long thing. Okay. Um, the next thing that they get into here, which is really kind of sales type stuff, uh, is what we call and how to overcome what we call objections. Okay, objections are things that that clients will bring up to say that will make it so that they are not going to make a decision. They're going to put it off. They're not going to make a decision. I have an objection. The listing price is not high enough. Your commission's too high. You know, all those kinds of things. So all we're saying here is that when you have a series of objections, there's traditionally answers, normal answers to them, okay? Normal answers. It's like a student comes in and says, I lost my, you know, typical thing, I lost my course outline. 
My answer might be go to the Blackboard website. I have a copy there. Okay. In other words, those are just standard, you know, standard, here's the problem, here's the answer. Okay. So what they're doing is they're giving you a listing of, uh, of objections. For example, they're saying, okay, objection number one, saving commission. Why should we pay you a big commission when, you can, when we can sell it ourselves? You know, I mean, commissions can be fairly high. You talk about if the average price home in Sacramento is, say, $300,000, and the commission, the gross commission is 6%, that's $18,000. That's a lot of money, you know. So consequently, the client will take a look at it and say, hey, wait a minute, if I could sell this on my own, I could save $18,000. That's what they'll look at. So, okay, this is perhaps the single most important reason why owners won't list even if they don't state it this way. Many, uh, many replies can be, let me see if I go to this, can be made to this, all of them dramatizing the benefits with accrued to owners if they list with you. For example, marketing know-how, saving time, avoiding legal entanglements, negotiation, so on and so forth. So what they do is they give you a series of responses. What do you say to these people? First of all, you could say something like this. First, the chief re reason you should not sell it yourself and save the commission is that in reality you aren't really saving commission. Technically, while you, while you the seller pay the commission, in practice it's always the buyer that pays the commission, which is true. In other words, you list the price house for sale for $300,000. The person that's buying it, they're going to be paying the money that comes into escrow is what's going to be paying their commission. Okay, that's what they're saying. Okay. Um, and then it goes on who says, uh, second one, by not listing, you attract the very buyer, uh, by not listing, you attract the very buyers who are not trying to put the commission in their pockets. They know that you have the commission cushion and that the asking price is not firm. What they're essentially saying there is, is that if you're listing your house for $300,000 because every other house in the area is $300,000 and you're selling it yourself, then the buyers know, they know that, you know, that, in other words, they know you're not paying that $18,000. So they're going, well, if he's not paying the $18,000, therefore I should be able to offer him this amount of money, which would be what? Uh, $282,000 and he's going to net the same out as if he was had an agent. So you're, 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 they, they're talking about the people out of savvy would know that, okay? Uh, if you try to sell your house, uh, you avoid paying the commission, but you'll be on call day and night. You'll have to pay for all of your own signs, your advertising, that's not that expensive. You'll have to deal with the problems and uh, inconveniences, hazards, headaches, uh, so on and so forth of selling your house. Now, some people may very well say, fine, I don't care. It doesn't make any difference to me. I'll do that. In fact, I'm looking at it as an adventure. I'm looking at it as fun. You know, I'm going to put this house on the market, and I'm going to meet some new people, and I'm going to learn a whole bunch of new things, and I'm looking forward to that. So while you're telling them that and you expect them to get nervous, they're not going to get nervous. They're going to look at it as an adventure. Just remember that not everybody, not everybody, you know, you're not ever going to capture everybody. You know, there are going to be people you'll do the listing presentation to that will say, thank you very much, I'm going to sell it on my own. And no matter what you say or do, it's not going to change them. You may think it's going to change them, but it's not. You're going to get... Uh, People that are going to try to say to you, listen, I'm not going to pay you that much commission, okay? I mean, you have to, in your all, all, all honesty, say, well, maybe, maybe you need to get somebody else, 
You know what I mean? There are people that may, you know, because people will, will look, when they ask for advice, when people look for advice, they look for people that will tell them what they want to hear. And if you're telling them that this is what the sales price is and what the commission is, and they say, well, I'm not going to list with you because you charge 6%. If somebody else walks in the door and says, oh, no problem, listen, hey, you know what? They, they were saying 320000 I get you 350 That'll cover the commission, no problem. You may find out if they're, not if they're fibbing and not telling the truth, you may find out that you'll get a call back from that person maybe two, three, four months later when the house hasn't sold because they've been given some bad advice. They heard what they wanted to hear, but the advice they got was not really any good. Okay? So just so you know that. Anyway, there is a whole bunch of responses down here to objections that you would hear. Okay, so the concept here is that you want to go over these and become familiar with these because this is basically the kind of stuff that you're going to hear. Okay, uh, and it just goes on and on and on with different types of objections and different types of answers. This is typically as any any kind of sales business. You know, you have to have a response, and after a while, uh, those issues or those answers, those things that people come up with, if you kept track of them over a year, year and a half, you'd find out it's always the same thing. You know, you could boil it down to, hey, you know what, no matter what happens, I'm going to get, typically I'm going to get, most of the time I'm going to get about eight to ten of these standard responses. And I'm going to have to be ready, willing, and able, prepared to, to handle that. Okay? The last thing is, is talking about something called servicing listings. And I'm, I'm going to go through this quick because we're getting really close to the end. Remember that once you have your listing, you don't go back and throw it in the MLS system and put an ad in the paper and forget about the client. You don't do that. You're starting a process. And I think in the book here they talk about things. I think probably the mo most important thing is right in here. I'm going to pull this up on the camera here. Is that you want to explain to the client what's going to happen week by week. What's going to happen? What happens week one, week two, week three, week four? You know? In other words, you know, as soon as you leave that place, that house, you're going to go back. You're going to run the agreement through with the broker. You know, make sure you didn't make any mistakes. You're going to put it into the MLS system. You're going to start setting up an open house for other brokers to come in. You're going to put it on the MLS tour. You're going to do a series of things. In other words, week one, you're going to do something. Week two, you're going to do something. You should... I think, sit there with the client and briefly explain to them what happens at each week. Don't promise them that you're going to do something. You just tell them, say, this is normally a normal listing. This is what happens on week one, week two, week three, week four, week five, and this is what you should expect. Because we're all marching towards the objective of selling the house. So this is what you should be expecting every week. And you should be in your contact with your client every week because I'm here to tell you when I've <laughs> listed property for sale, you know, you're on the phone to that agent. You know, I mean, there's some of us that are on the phone more often than others to the agent, but you're call you expect to talk to them at least once or twice a week. You know, where are you at? Have you had any offers? What happened to those people I came through with the other company la yesterday? Uh, how many houses? I mean, you, they're going to expect. That's the time that you, become, you go from being a salesperson to a therapist, you know, kind of working with them because they're becoming very anxious. Maybe they've made a bunch of decisions to buy another house, and it's all contingent upon you getting rid of this house. So they're very, very nervous. So getting back with them and going through that process and, and taking through the various steps are really, really important. Very, very critical and important. Okay? Um, 
I really strongly suggest that you read those. Um, very important. I don't care. Maybe you may want to modify them. You may want to do them another way. But there's just a series of things that happen to have. You know, like you probably are going to be looking at the fact that you're, you know, if you get the listing the first week, and then hopefully, you know, like if you got it on a Saturday, you'd probably be trying to get it in the MLS. You'd probably be trying to get uh, it on the MLS tour the following with the real estate agents, which means that now you got to get there. You got to have the house open. You got to have 30, 40 people coming through. You got to get flyers printed out. You got to get information out to them. You got to let your clients know that, listen, next Tuesday or, or Wednesday or Thursday, please don't be home. We're going to have people coming through. We need to get the house vacuumed up, cleaned up. You know, that's the first, you know, pretty much the part of the first and second week. Then probably somewhere in there, maybe the following week or the week after that, you start talking about having open houses, you know, uh, you know, to show the property, running ads in the paper. You know, there's a lot of activity that starts to happen. Then as, as agents come through the house, you'll be wanting to do things like tell the uh, clients, say, listen, every time uh, there's like an unspoken policy with all real estate agents, when they bring clients through, they leave their business card. Can you please collect those business cards for me and give me a phone call and let me know who the agent was so that I can call the agent and follow up and find out what kind of an impression they had, where we are, you know, were they interested with this, something that they really liked about the house, you know, maybe even find out where they're coming from, where the buyers are coming from, what they liked, what they disliked. Uh, and usually what they'll do is they'll, if the agent has a chance, they'll stop by and pick those cards up. And usually what they'll do is they'll write on the back of the card some little comments so they can keep track of what's going on, you know. But very, very important that they get that feedback. You know, you're constantly discussing. So you can imagine after you have a couple listings, you're doing a lot of work. You know, you're doing a lots and lots of work once you have a listing. You know, you get two, three, four of these listings going. You're, doing, <laughs> you're spending a lot of time just doing the listing work. You know, and then guess what? Somebody may come up and say, I want to buy some property. So now all of a sudden you may very well be working with some buyers. So it's not unusual for you and, uh, you know, not to scare you, but within a week's period of time between listing properties and buyers and closing escrows and, and everything else, you may have maybe a hundred different relationships that you're trying to manage on a weekly basis. You're trying to work with an escrow officer to get something, to get the deal closed on this house. You're trying to get the offer presented on that house. You're trying to get the bug guy to fix it on that house. You've got people to show properties to on Tuesday. You've got a lot of things to keep yourself busy and going. So that's where things like the time management and all that stuff comes in. Okay. With that, I think we're finished now with show eight, and again, it'll be up on the Internet soon. Thank you very much.